We're reading from Romans 9, 19 through 29. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to his molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for your love and your sovereign grace. We ask this morning for you to be with Kevin as he preaches to us your word. Would you use him to awaken us to your word, Father, so that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, we thank you for the cross, which is the mediator, that we may even stand before you this morning. We thank you for the spirit which empowers us to worship you and to serve one another. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you guys this morning. I uh, see uh, some of you came back after last week's sermon, so that's a good sign, although it does look like we lost a few. So I don't know if there's something going on and people are out of town this week or um, the Bible pushed some people away. <laughs> um, but uh, anytime you talk on the sovereignty of God, uh, specifically in regards to salvation, um, and you start working through what God's Word says in that, um, y- you, you get a little worried about how you're going to you know, properly convey the Scripture 
to both be uh, honorable to what God's word says, but not try to fit into one, you know, necessarily theological category, you know, because there's a lot of nuance with a lot of this. And so, uh, but anyway, can I just say this? I I had a great time celebrating last week with you guys, uh, celebrating God's grace over us for the last five years and, and hoping and dreaming and praying uh, for the, for the future. What a, what a good time that was to uh, just gather together. And so, uh, but if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn over to Romans chapter 9. This morning is, is basically going to be a continuation of exactly what we talked about last week. And I told you guys towards the end of my sermon last week that there was going to, there's a major question that was arising in the passage that we looked at last week and that this week was going to answer um, that question. So for those of you guys that may not have been here last week, I'm going to do the best that I possibly can, and I make no promises on how good that's going to be. I'm going to do the best that I possibly can to sum up last week's sermon in about five minutes. So bear with me for a minute because we're going to be uh, trying to fit in a very, very dense and um, difficult passage that sometimes takes entire semesters for seminary to, to process through. I'm going to be trying to condense that down into about five minutes, so bear with me. So Romans chapter 9 is all about God's sovereignty in the midst of salvation, In the midst of someone becoming a follower of Christ, God's sovereignty in the midst of this. And and last week when I started off talking about this, I said that we tend to, as human beings, believe in attributes of God. But then when we take those attributes of God to their logical conclusion, we start to become, become uncomfortable with them. Right, if we say, well, I believe that God is all-powerful because the scriptures teach me that God is all-powerful, but then you must realize that God would have the capability of causing the universe to collapse in on itself. Well, that's kind of scary. I don't really like that. But the reality is, is that God, if he set the universe in motion and created life as we know it, has the ability to erase all that. You may not like that, but philosophically, that has to be a reality. That the laws of science that we say govern our universe and govern our reality, if they were set in in force and and motion by God, he doesn't have to follow those same laws. He's not constrained by them. I told you guys last week that if God is holy, something we frequently say is true of God, if God is holy, that means he's separate, which means he's His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And when we start trying to put God into a box that is always super relatable to us, we start creating issues because that's not always the case. Yes, God put on human flesh and entered into our world so that he might save us and rescue us from our sin through the person and work of Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that God is human. That doesn't mean that God is constrained by the things we are constrained by. And then lastly, as I said last week, if God is really sovereign and is king, you don't get to dictate decisions he makes. And the reality is, is if if I'm going to be truly honest about that, it means he's in control of everything, and that means you are not. Even the way you think about him, you... (laughs) You, you don't get to define who God is. And that's where we start getting into issues as humans because our entire lives are quite the opposite. And so 
At the end of Romans 8, right, Paul says, is talking about God's great love for us in salvation. That there is no greater demonstration of God's great love for us than in the finished work of Christ. And that he finishes Romans 8 by saying that he is convinced that nothing can separate us from that love of God. Nothing. And he says the reason for that is because of God's sovereign hand in salvation. That God foreknew you, which meant he knew before the foundations of the earth that he was going to choose to bestow his grace, his mercy, and his love on you. And then he was going to predestine you, which meant he was going to provide the way of salvation for you. And then it says that those that he foreknew and that he predestined, that he justified, meaning that he sent his son to actually do the work of paying the penalty for your sin. And then it says that those that he justified, he also glorified, meaning that there is a great promise at the end of Romans 8 that God is going to do something magnificent at the end where he's going to give you a new body and those new desires that have been placed in your heart by the Holy Spirit will spend eternity echoing the praises of God as you worship him in spirit and in truth for eternity. That there will be no more sin, no more pain, no more death, no more shame. And that all of that is a promise of God, but it's all done because God sovereignly acted to do all of it. Paul is very, very intentional about placing that wording in there because he wants us to understand that we can both bank on these promises, but we bank on the promises not because of our own performance, but because of the work of God and because of what he's done for us. And so when you get to Romans 9 then, and Paul's just laid out Romans 8 uh, and how God has loved his people so much, the rebuttal is going to be, well, what about Israel? They're, they're God's chosen people. What, why, why are they rejecting Jesus? Why are they persecuting the church? Why are God's chosen people seeming to not be chosen anymore? And first of all, Paul kind of lays this down because one of the things I said last week is that frequently if we are going to understand something theologically, those that typically have a strong understanding of God's sovereignty and election also tend to be some of the most unloving people in the world. And Paul quickly says, look, I would die for Israel and surrender my own salvation if it meant Israel might accept Jesus as the Messiah. So he gives us a template for ministry. He says, look, just because this theology is true doesn't mean we stop caring for the world around us. Far from it. That I would lay down my own salvation if it meant the salvation of my brothers. He says, but we need to understand those who were saved in the Old Testament, how God operated. And, and to be perfectly honest, Paul's really actually already answered this question earlier in the book of Romans, but he's going to do it again, right? And so as we saw last week, he says this, being Jewish no more saved somebody in Israel and made them a follower of God than you or I wearing a gator jersey on game day makes us a member of the team. That just because there's some small affiliation or relationship between the group of people that love God and you being culturally born into that didn't make you a follower of God. And he says, here, let me give you an example that shows that those were of true Israel and those that truly knew God were because God chose them. I'm going to display that for you, right? So he goes back to Abraham. That's his first example. And he says, 
Look at the life of Abraham and look at Abraham's two sons. Right, Ishmael and Isaac. Who did God choose? He chose, he chose Isaac. Doesn't mean he discarded Ishmael, but the promise of the Messiah coming through the line and the seed of Abraham was extended down to Isaac, not to Ishmael. And then he says, okay, well, okay, well, we get that, all right, but that, that kind of makes sense because, you know, uh, Ishmael was born out of a, 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 an ungodly situation, and so we kind of get why God did that, and so it, Paul says, okay, good. Well, let's look then at Isaac's kids, Jacob and Esau. Who was born first? Esau was. And he says, look, in Jewish society— and culture at this time, inheritance and uh, honor and uh, the promises were always given to the firstborn son. And what ends up happening in the story of Jacob and Esau? Right? Jacob gets the promise passed down through his line, and Esau does not. And what we see is, is Paul is saying, when in regards to salvation, right, it was never on the basis of race. And those in the Old Testament that received and believed upon the promise of the Messiah and were saved did so as a function of God's choice and love to them. Right, Jacob and Esau was still in the womb when God chose Jacob. That's the very point that Paul is trying to point out. And, and we talked about all the problems with this, right? Because once we start seeing, they're like, well, wait a minute. God chose Isaac and not Ishmael. God chose Jacob and not Esau. This is, okay, this is starting to actually, like, make some sense now because God could have just have easily have done something else. When we start kind of wrestling with that, what, what immediately comes up in us, and this, and this happens for us because we're Westerners, we start trying to find ways to start explaining this away. Oh, well, well, maybe God had this specific plan because, you know, Jacob did this or Esau did this, and then, we were, then we're brought with the reality that this happened in the womb. It's like, well, no, no child in the womb ever did anything deserving of anything. Right? And it starts wrestling control away from us. And we don't like that. Right? We are an incredibly individualistic culture and society. But the reality is, is that if God operates this way, for God to be God, either these things are true or they're not. And so what we see then is this objection then that says, well, if God chose Isaac, and God chose Jacob, and the way that God saves is through his sovereign choice to choose to love somebody, if that's what is really happening here, then the objection is going to be this. Is God unjust? Like, wh why didn't God pick Ishmael? Why, why didn't God pick Esau? Like, isn't that really, really unfair? And Paul's answer to that was no. Just as God showed mercy to Israel when Moses interceded to him, and just as God showed mercy to Moses to reveal his glory before him, it's completely as a function of God's choice to be merciful, not, not an issue of justice or not. Right? And, and the way he proves this is he points this out in Exodus 33. So go over there with me really quick, and I want to look at this. Because this is important. This will help you to understand this concept of God saving somebody, being mercy. And if it's mercy, there can be no such thing as whether God's being just in that situation or not. Right? In Exodus 33, the nation of Israel has just gotten done right, worshiping the golden calf in chapter 32. 
They, Moses has been gone for like 20 minutes and they turn to this fake God that they create. It, it takes them no time at all. And Moses comes down from the mountain, right, and God's like, I'm done with these people. <laughs> it's over. I have liberated them from Egypt. They still don't get it. I'm done. And Moses intercedes for them. And what you see when you get to this passage in, in chapter 33 Starting in verse 17, the Lord says to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. Meaning, I I will continue to be Israel's people. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know your name. Now, we need to remember, had Moses done anything special to earn God's favor? No. When he met Moses in the wilderness, in a burning bush, Moses was hiding out from being a murderer. Right? And then when God gives Moses his sovereign plan to rescue Israel, Moses rejects it. It's like, dude, I can't do that. It's like, dude, I'm God. Just, I'm talking to you from a burning bush right now. What do you mean you can't do this? And then God rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt, and they, con- they continue not to trust and, and you get to this moment, and Moses intercedes and says, look, God, for your name's sake, save Israel, because you have promised that you would deliver them. And, and God's like, okay. You know, you found favor because you're trusting in me and my character to be merciful. I am going to rescue them. And then look at this part right here when you get to verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And so he says right there to Moses, I'm going to let my glory pass before you because I'm, I'm choosing to reveal that to you. But it is not because you've done something special, but because I choose to do so. And when I show mercy and grace towards someone, it's because I choose to be gracious and merciful towards them, not because they deserve it. And here's what we need to understand, because when we start talking about God's sovereignty and salvation and that objection, that seems really unfair that God might choose to save some and not others, or God might choose to be merciful to some and not others. We made this statement last week. Mercy, by definition, is you getting something you don't deserve. And if God were to have to extend mercy to everyone for it to be just, it ceases to be mercy and moves to obligation. God is no longer merciful if he is obligated to forgive everyone. And so the question is, is do you want God's mercy or do you want God to be obligated? And the scriptures teach us over and over again that God owes us nothing. We owe him everything. And that God might choose to be merciful to some is not just or unjust. As a matter of fact, I would argue that it's unjust to God that he would save anyone because no one is deserving of that mercy or grace. And so asking that question in the first place comes from the wrong place because you know what it says? When you ask that question— on whether God is unjust in that situation or not. What you are saying is, I know the best way for the universe to operate. And I know the best way to save the world. And I know the best way to bring the most glory to God. And God's doing it wrong because it doesn't fit into my plan. But if you are someone that holds to the sovereignty of God, you are trying to rob God of that sovereignty in asking that question in the first place. 
You're trying to rob God of his power in asking that question in the first place. You're trying to rob God of his ability to extend mercy by asking that question in the first place. If anything moves from God's sovereign will and decision making to you deciding what happens, you make it either obligation and you make God owing us something and you place yourself on the throne of the universe instead of God. Now, I hate to break it to you guys. You are not God. Some of you guys function as your own God, and I'm here to tell you that I did that for a long time. It doesn't work well. Right? You, some of you guys are really, really smart, but you make terrible gods. And the other thing that Paul is going to point out in all of this as he was working through this last week, and I've gone well over five minutes, I apologize. He also says, you guys tend to not have problems with God extending mercy when you get it, and you tend not to have problems when you see God not extending mercy when you think the person's undeserving of it. Like, no one has a problem with Pharaoh receiving God's justice. Right? Like, remember back to Pharaoh, right? And says, God was merciful to Moses and yet chose to harden Pharaoh's heart. And we talked about that, right? How that wasn't necessarily mean like God went inside of Pharaoh and like had to make him evil. Like, no, Pharaoh already was evil, just like every human being. He just gave Pharaoh over to his wickedness. But that in that, right, what he said was, is he used Pharaoh's rebellion to reveal the glory of God in saving Israel. And so the question then comes, right, because Israel seems to not have a problem that they were rescued from slavery in Egypt. It seems not to be a, a frequent objection. But the question is, is, well, wait a minute. If God gave Pharaoh over to his own sin, how can Pharaoh be held accountable for that sin? If God hardened Pharaoh's heart, how could he, give him, how could he then be held accountable for that? And that's what we're going to answer this morning. Right? We've answered the question, is, is God unjust to just save some? Now we're going to answer the question of, is it, is it okay for God to hold people accountable when they've rebelled against him? And by the way, the answer is going to be yes. Okay, look at verse 19 of Romans chapter 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? So right there's the question. How can God find fault with somebody? No one can resist God's will. You've been telling me that he's sovereign and all-powerful. How can God then find fault with someone who resists him? Right, and, and, and as, we, as we're thinking through this, right, how can Pharaoh be guilty? Remember, God didn't force Pharaoh to sin. He gave him over to his sin. If you remember back in Romans chapter 1, verse 24, throw that up there for me real quick. This, this is Paul talking about the human race and their sinfulness towards God. And this is how I said you would know very quickly if God's wrath was pointed towards you. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves. Meaning that when you can know that God's wrath is pointed towards you if your sin goes completely unchecked. And that's what God did with Pharaoh. He's, he's like, Pharaoh wants to rebel. Pharaoh thinks he's God of the universe. Pharaoh thinks because he's the most, pop, the most powerful king in all the universe, I'm just going to give him over. I'm going to let him run his course. And then I'm going to embarrass him. I'm going to embarrass him in front of the world. Because I'm going to deliver a group of slaves out of his country. But it wasn't like God had to do a bunch of groundwork to make Pharaoh want to be disobedient. It was in Pharaoh's nature to want to do so. And so Paul's response to this question of, hey, how can we be held accountable is going to be very firm, but very rational. And here's how he does it. Look at verses 20 through 24 with me. 
He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Okay. You're going to notice in those four verses, three things— that Paul is going to point out as reasons why we are still held accountable for our sin and why God is still sovereign and merciful in the midst of all this. Okay, so if you're taking notes, you're, th- these are the things you're going to want to write down. All right, number one. The first kind of response to all of this is God is cr- creator. Therefore, we don't really even get to question him. That's his first response, right? He says, he says this. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Like who gets to decide what happens with what what is created? Now admittedly, guys, this this is tough to swallow, okay? Like I'm not not gonna try to sugarcoat this or or deny the weightiness of it. Because it's not how we operate. Okay? Paul is saying, you don't get to question God's decision making. And yet everyone in this room has lived the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years of their life questioning decision making. Right? You question your parents. You question your friends. You question your teachers. We question our politicians. We question athletes. Right, that's basically what we do all the time. Facebook is just one big giant screaming match at everybody telling the other person why they're wrong. Right, that by definition, this is typically what we do in the West. We question someone else's authority and we challenge it. And yet, Paul says this. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to question the God of the universe on whether he's doing something right or not? You're asking the wrong question. You're asking as if you have the authority and you get to decide what God does with what he created. You don't. How many of you guys are familiar with the story of Job? Okay, most of you, good. All right, go over to to Job chapter 1 real quick and throw that up there for me. Right, Job chapter 1, right, we get this kind of beautiful picture before Job goes through everything that he goes through of what happens beforehand, right? And look at this, right? Starting in verse 8, right, Satan's come in and said, hey, let me test Job, and he and God kind of go back and forth, and look at this, starting in verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, and there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? So you see that, that there's something going on between Satan and God in wrestling over where Job's affections lie. And Satan goes on to say, the only reason Job loves you is because you've blessed him. He doesn't really love you. He just loves the things you've given him. And God's like, all right, let's test him. You, go ahead. Put him to the test, Satan. 
take, take, his, take his family, uh, take his possessions, take his health, do all these things. And then, right, we get to read through the book, and you get to see a really beautiful example of how not to be a good friend to somebody, because Job's friends are literally the absolute worst, and have terrible advice, right? And, they, and you go through all this, and you know, what's one, you know what's so fascinating about the book of Job? You get to chapter 38, and chapters 38 through 41 is this discourse, and, and Job ain't talking much in those chapters, by the way. But starting in chapter 38, Job gets to meet with God. And he says to God, why did you allow this to happen? Like, what is wrong with you? And, you know, and normally in that situation, right, Job's made it. He's kept the faith. He's trusted God. He's barely held on, but he kept the faith. Right? And you're thinking, all right, Job, Job's going to get this awesome answer. God's going to be like, look, Satan came, and, you know, we, we displayed uh, the, the beauty of your faith to, to, to Satan and demons and, and to the world around you. Like, you're expecting this really beautiful answer, and we're going to pump Job up. And what does God say to Job? Dude, who do you think you are? You don't get to question me. Let me ask you this question, Job. Where were you when I created the earth and put it on its axis and it started rotating? See this weather out here? Did you, did you set that in motion? Did you create the atmosphere? See the animals and the way they interact with one another? Did you do that? What about the tides? The tides of the ocean? Did you set that in motion? Did you do that? You don't get to ask me that question, dude. I'm God. You're my creation. You don't, you don't get to ask that question. The created doesn't get to dictate to the creator. If you don't take anything else away from this morning, take that away. The created doesn't get to dictate to the creator. We don't get to dictate terms of how God is supposed to operate. If he is sovereign, if he is really creator, we don't get to dictate to him. Now, you may not like it, but that's how it is. So, number one, right? God is creator, therefore we don't even really get to question him. Now, number two, the second thing he shows in here. God is not calling some to damnation. We author that. We are the author of our own demise. He is, however, the hero of salvation. That is what, that is what Paul is teaching here. Let me, let me ask you guys this question. Would, be, would God be justified if he wiped out the human race? If he said, I'm, I'm done with my creation, I'm, I'm hitting the reset button. Would God be justified in that? If you have a proper understanding of, of the, 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 the depth of sinfulness of human beings, the answer is yes. God would be justified in doing that. We've rebelled, we still rebel, and we don't want to submit. Paul says, though, that even though God has this right to be done with human beings, he says this, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Meaning, God could have ended humanity on the spot, and yet, look at what Paul says, in dealing with rebellious, sinful human beings, he instead chooses to what? Endure with them. So that some that he chose 
might be prepared for mercy. God, guys, the language there of saying that God endures with the human race is not complimentary. It's not. Like, it's, it's as if, right, God's like, all right, to be able to do what I need to do to display my glory and save some, I'm going to have to put up with some junk. Parents, you do this all the time if you're a parent here. Stinky diapers, crying and screaming. You just, you just put up with it because you love your kid and you want to see them raised and grow up to be a productive, God-fearing human being. But there are some moments where you're like, you, you're like I am, this is not fun. Like, just fr- Friday night, I took the kids to play soccer, and I took Josiah, and he's three. And we're sitting there playing soccer, and there's all these high school kids playing lacrosse on the field right next to us, and it was just this hilarious moment, because we're playing soccer, and Josiah just picks the ball up and starts running around with them. I'm like, dude, we're playing soccer. You don't use your hands in soccer. Well, he's three, and he's a sinful human being, and so he flips. I mean, like, completely loses touch with reality. Throws the ball and screams, no! And then just starts crying uncontrollably. And then continues to cry uncontrollably. And then five minutes later is still crying uncontrollably. And I'm sitting there like, dude, I'm like, get out of here. This is not fun right now. This is supposed to be a fun time with us as a family. And of course, the, there's this one high school kid and he's kind of like, is he okay? Like, you know, you get to kind of tell that they're like worried that I did something extremely terrible to him. I'm like, no, he's just three. Like, this is, this is what three-year-olds do. Of course, he was in high school, so he had no idea what I was talking about. And yet, I love Josiah. And I will bear and endure with his temper tantrums for as long as they last so I might have the opportunity to love him well, to be his dad, and point him to Christ. And God looks at his creation who rebel and flip out, oftentimes over nothing, and he chooses to be patient and endure so that he might save some. The truth is that God puts up with dirtbags like me and like you so that he can save some and display his glory. Now, there is something we need to point out here because we need to read the text closely here because sometimes when you start talking about predestination and election and God's choice, what happens is, is people start teaching, well, if God predestines people to be saved, he also predestines some to hell. And they'll read this passage and they'll say, this is what it's teaching right here. That is not what this is teaching. Okay, look closely at the language with me. It says, uh, starting in verse uh, 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Right? So look what he says. It says that, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with, it's, we've, we've moved the subject at this point, God is enduring much with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Meaning that, hey, these vessels were already heading for destruction. That's, that's the way we translate that. They're already heading for that. God didn't have to do anything to prepare them for that. He's just, he's just being patient with them. But then if you move to the next verse, look at how it changes. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. And then look at this. Who has prepared the vessels of mercy? Him. 
meaning that Paul is making it abundantly clear that you and I are the authors of our own demise when it comes to our rebellion towards God, but those that are, that are saved are done so because God prepares them to be so. God saves to make his glory and power known. And so we've seen two things up to this point, right? Number one, God is creator and you don't get to question him. Number two, God is not sending some to hell, but he is, however, the hero of salvation, right? But that we are the author of our own demise. All right, number three, third thing we see in, in, these, in these five verses here. God saves so that we might see his glory in only some people being saved. Let me, let me repeat that. God has decided in some way, shape, or form, that it is more glorious for him just to save some than it is for him to save all. That is, that is what is being displayed here. Now, God softens the heart of anyone who is saved, but passes over those he does not choose as they are hardened. And the inescapable reality is this, is that God has deemed it most glorifying to him for some to be saved and not all. Now, I don't pretend to have it all figured out, but this is what the scriptures seem to be teaching here. That God has decided that he looks most glorious when some continue to rebel and deny the gospel while he saves some. And Paul invites us into, instead of worrying about what is fair, and which by the way, fair would be all of us dead. We just need to make sure we, we clarify that and not saved. But Paul invites us to, instead of worrying about what is fair, to instead worship God for choosing to save some. Let me, let me give you an, an, an analogy or an example of how this might work. Because I was wrapping my brain in my mind. How do we explain that, that it might be most loving for God to save some, but not all? How many of you guys have ever played a sport? Okay, most of the room. How many of you guys have ever gotten a trophy just for simply participating in a sport? I remember, I'm going to make fun of my sister's soccer team. They stunk. Like really bad in like the middle school years. I'm talking like zero wins over like two or three seasons. I remember the game where they got their first win. It was like miraculous. The heavens opened up. Angels rejoiced. She's laughing. She knows I'm right. Okay. Every year as they finished last place in their league, guess what they got? The Sportsmanship Award. <laughs> now, but don't get me wrong, I think sports was just probably a good thing, okay? Let me tell you what that, that, that award was. We feel bad because you're bad. Like, here, here's a pat on the back. If we asked Kristen, she wasn't really that excited about the Sportsmanship Award. When that team started improving and getting better at soccer and started winning their division, that meant something. It meant something that they won and everyone else didn't. Right? If you watch professional sports, right, we talk about the greatest athletes and the greatest teams. We talk about the ones that do what? Win championships. One of the things that was fascinating to me about, about the South when I moved down here, it's like you guys win the SEC East and you're like, man, the Caters are terrible. I'm like, you guys won the East, you're going to the SEC Championship. We didn't win the National Championship, don't care. It's like there are 140-some college football teams just in Division I alone, and there's one winner every year, meaning by definition, every year, 143 teams fail. 
if that's your goal to win a national championship. Right? Be, being right, the winner, the champion, right, means something because not everyone else gets it. Being saved and seeing God's glory upon us, it means something because not everyone is saved. God looks glorious because some people somehow deny the beauty of the gospel. I, I, I found this, this quote this week, and I'm just going to read it to you guys. It's kind of long, but it's good. It's um, from D. James Kennedy in his, in his book, Truths That Transform, when talking about this idea that, that God sees it as more glorious to him to save some and not all. Look at, listen to what he says. He says, let me share with you an example that I think through when thinking of this. He says, there are five people who are planning to hold up a bank. They are friends of mine, and I find out about their plan, and I plead with them. I beg them not to do it. Finally, they push me out of the way, and they start out. I tackle one of the men and wrestle him to the ground and hold him while the others go ahead, rob the bank, a guard is killed, they are captured, convicted, and sentenced. The one man who was not involved in the robbery, what? Goes free. Now I ask you this question, whose fault was it that the other men died? Now this other man who's walking around free, can he say, because my heart is so good, I am a free man. The only reason that he is free is because of me. Because I restrained him. So those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus we see that salvation is all of grace from its beginning to its end. That if anyone is saved, it's because God chose you and saved you. And guess what? I would bet in this particular scenario, that guy is pretty thankful for for him, his friend tackling him. Because he looks more glorious in that moment. So God saves some for his glory, and we get to partake in that, but not all. Let's look at these last four verses. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people I will call my people, and her who was not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. All right, so let me just briefly tell you what Paul's trying to do here. In in talking to his audience and trying to explain to them why Israel is rejecting the gospel, he's basically said, not all of Israel was really chosen. That's been his thesis. And that God has always chosen to save those whom he will save. And he he shared the example of the patriarchs, right, by sharing the story of Abraham. He, He shares the story of Moses and Exodus. And then he gets to the prophets, that's what he's doing. He's quoting the prophets here to prove his point. Right? And with Hosea, he says, look, 
God promised to the prophet Hosea that God will save others and bring them into his family and they will not be of the racial cultural family of Israel. That's the, the promise God made. That he would call out people to be a part of his family and they would not be a part of racial Israel. And then he moves on to say, and Isaiah told us that not all of Israel is saved. That if God doesn't save, none will be saved and that destruction awaits those who are not the faithful remnant that God has called. That, that is what he's saying. And so Paul has said, look, God has always been sovereign in saving some and it's worked through Abraham, it's worked through Isaac, it's worked through Jacob, it's worked its way down to Moses, and then it worked its way into the prophets because God has always operated that way with Israel. It's been that way from the outset. You don't have to like it, but God is sovereign, so whether you like it or not, it's reality. Now, here's how I want to end our time this morning. Because the inescapable truth that we've looked at from Scripture over the last two weeks has said this, if you are a Christian, it's because God chose to save you. And that's good news. I'm not saying that you don't have any free will or any ability to make a decision. I very much so believe that human beings make decisions. I just, I just believe fully that when God chose you, right, he foreknew you, he predestined you, and as part of that predestination and justification process, there was no way you were gonna say no to him. Now, in that, right, if we see Paul saying this, look, if you are a Christian, God chose you, the inevitable question that comes up for, for the believers is, well, why? Why, why did God choose me? What, what did, like, what, I, I don't get it. By the way, I would just say this. If you were asking that question, I would say you're starting to understand the gospel. You are starting to understand the rich mercy and grace of God towards his people because that is a very fair question to ask. There is no reason why God would choose you. None. I, I don't know at all why God chose me. I've been a believer for well over a decade now. Still haven't found even one reason that might make sense as to why God chose me. There's nothing racial about it. There's nothing morally superior about me. There's, there's nothing about my performance as a, as a human or as a Christian that makes me more advantageous to be a part of God's family than anyone else. If it blows your mind that God might choose you, it's then that you start worshiping God because you realize the magnitude of his incomprehensible grace and mercy towards you. You coming to faith in Christ was not an accident. Anyone that has ever called upon the name of Jesus through repentance and faith to be saved, it is not an accident. It is 100% God's grace and mercy towards that person. I, I decided that as I was thinking through this, I was gonna share my own story because I think it might help and of how, uh, how I, I came, came to know Christ. Because, you know, in between my sophomore and junior years of college is where I kind of realized that I had this epiphany that, like, I'm going to follow Jesus. This is amazing. Like, God himself would send his only son to die for me? Like, this is ridiculous. Right? And I, and I kind of had this, like, just this, this, this 
mental kind of mindset of like, I made this super wise decision to choose God. I did it. Like, I, like finally, like once someone shared the gospel with me, like it clicked and I made this crazy, amazing decision, the best decision I've ever made, which by the way it was. And then I started reading my Bible, and specifically I get to Romans chapter 9 verses, chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11. I'm like, wait a minute, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what? And in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, I'm like reading through this stuff, and, and I start reading the Old Testament, and I see God's hand of election and choice and mercy throughout the Old Testament. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. So, so God chose me, and I just responded to that? Like, is, is, is that what we're seeing here? Like, what, what, wait a minute, what's going on here? I, 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 I don't get this. And then I started looking back on my life. Like, wait a minute, how did I come to faith? What, what happened over the course of my life? And you know what I realized, guys? God set me up. I'd been had. I thought I had, like, come to this, gone through all this stuff and made this great conclusion, coming to the, the end of my philosophical inquiry about the, my worldview. And I look back on it, I'm like, wait a minute, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, I, I grew up in a, in a, a church attending family kind of when it was convenient and soccer wasn't interfering and didn't know the Lord but knew some things about God so I had a little bit of a foundation there a blessing in many ways sometimes a curse but a blessing in many ways and I got into my dream school West Virginia University not because of its academic rigors but because you could party there and was super excited to be there was like ready to have a great time with my friends and you know what happened I was miserable I was absolutely miserable there. It was cold. The sun never shined. I was supposed to be having all this fun partying. I really wasn't. And so I decide, you know, this is West Virginia's fault. It's a frequent statement by people that live in Virginia. It's West Virginia's <laughs> fault. This is West Virginia's fault. I'm, I'm, I'm going back in state. And there's a party school in Virginia. I'll have fun at that one. So I'm going to JMU. I have friends there. I'll know people. It'll be a pretty easy and smooth transition. And so I, I come back home. I do junior college for a semester, get my GPA up so I can get back into that school, and I go. And guess what? I'm miserable. Now, I put on a facade that things were great, but inside my own heart, there was deep turmoil, distress, and unsatisfaction with my life. And in the meantime, guess what? My sister doesn't know this, but she got set up too. God wanted to use my sister uniquely in my life to share the gospel with me. So I feel bad for her. She wanted to go to the University of Virginia and God made her go to JMU instead so she might get to witness to me. And my sister faithfully loved me well my entire sophomore year of college and shared the gospel with me multiple times had people praying for me. My wife was praying for my salvation. She had no idea who I was. And so we get to the end of my, my, my sophomore year of college and I've started going to, to, to church on occasion and um, you know, visiting some campus ministries on occasion. And at the, at the same time, I'm like, well, some of this stuff sounds kind of cool, but I start investigating other world religions and worldviews as I'm attending church. And then I start thinking, well, like, things are actually heading in the right direction. Like, I'm going to get into the major I want to get in. And I started dating this girl from back home. And I was like, you know, this is a, 
you know, she's, she's beautiful, she's really sweet, she comes from this big family, there's all sorts of things to love here. By the way, that relationship was a complete dumpster fire and train wreck. Not surprising, I was involved in it, right? I mean, everything else I touched was a complete train wreck, why wouldn't that be? And so I, I, I get to like this, this month before my junior year of college starts, and I'm still miserable. This relationship is a disaster. I've gotten into my dream program to be an athletic trainer one day, and then I realize, and some of you guys are athletes in here, so I apologize, but I hate you guys. Because you get hurt, and the job of an athletic trainer is to help rehabilitate you and get you ready for it, and you don't show up to treat me, you don't do any of the things you're supposed to do. And then you're like, well, hey, why isn't this working? Because you aren't rehabbing, that's why. And so I'm, I'm in this program, I'm, I'm spending 50 to 60 hours a week in the training room. I'm doing all this extra work with these really, really difficult classes. And then on top of that, I'm also having to go to class. And I had foolishly taken on a part-time job in this time as well. And I'm just miserable. And my, my girlfriend at the time and I, finally, after about the 15th time of breaking up and getting back together, we end it. I'm like, I can't forgive this. I can't forgive this girl for the, for the way this has all gone over the last you know, four or five months. I'm done. And I decided, I'm going to go to church tomorrow on my own. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go. Students weren't back yet. It's like me, and it's kind of like a lathe here during the summer. It's like 20 of us. And I show up, and the pastor, when he would preach on a, a subject, he would make a title. Guys, God set me up. I walk in there, and the passage is Matthew chapter 18, the story of the unforgiving servant. And the title of my pastor's sermon is, Forgiveness, What a Great Idea. God set me up. I'm sitting there, I've never read this, the, the story of the unforgiving servant before, so I open up God's Word, I'm like, oh, I'm going to read this, I don't, I don't really like this, because I just got done saying I'm never going to forgive this woman. And as I read that story, I felt bad for the people sitting next to me. They didn't know who I was. I wasn't involved at that church, and I'm just crying next to two complete strangers. They're kind of looking at me like, this service hasn't even started yet. Like, what's going on with this guy? I'm just weeping. Like, that's me. I want God's mercy, but I don't want to extend it to anyone else. I, how wicked am I? It was there that, that God said, now you get it. Come to me. Because although you, are the, you feel and know in your heart that you are the most wicked of sinners, my grace is sufficient for you. I was saved right there. I didn't even know what I was doing. <laughs> I'm just like, Jesus, that's what I want. I didn't care about anything else. That's all, I, that's all I want. Guys, God set me up. If I'd have had my perfect plan, I would have graduated from West Virginia University with a degree in forensic science. By the way, you have to be smart to be able to do forensic science. That was not happening. I, by the way, I picked my major to not have to take calculus, just so if you guys want to know how dumb I am. But looking back on that, coincidence after coincidence after coincidence, because God in his sovereign mercy chose to reveal his love and grace towards me so that I might know him as Savior and King.
when I got to my lowest point, God breathed life into me so that I might choose and decide to follow him. Not in my wisdom, because God chose me. Here's what I want to ask you. If you are here this morning, it is not an accident that you are here today. You may think you're here because some random friend has invited you. You may think you're here because it's what you're supposed to do. In the South, you may be here because you don't even know why you're here. I, I mean, looking back on my journey, there are tons of times like that. Why, why did I go to that crew meeting? Why did I join a Bible study? Right? Why all of a sudden did drinking become completely unappealing to me so that I had to actually deal with my issues and take them to Christ? Why did my sister choose to surrender time with close friends and have relationships with the people that she could have had in her dorm to spend time with me and share the gospel with me? Because God chose to save me that's why it is not an accident that you are here the good news is that god is in the business of saving and we don't know who those people are you're not god so you don't get to know who the elect are you don't get to know who god chooses and god in his mercy saves whom he wills And he did that by sending his only son in the likeness of sinful flesh. We're celebrating Palm Sunday this week. I know I haven't mentioned any of that. But on this day that we're recognizing today, Jesus entered Jerusalem as a king. They, They praised his name and cried out to God, thankful that Jesus was entering in Jerusalem. And a few days later, they nailed him to a cross as a blasphemer. And yet Jesus said it was good for him to head to Jerusalem to face his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection because that is how the Father would choose to save us. And when Christ went to the cross, what was happening is that he was taking upon his shoulders all of your sin, all of my sin, and paying the penalty for our wickedness to God the Father so that God might remain just. And yet in that, he was extending to us His righteousness. Theologians call it the great exchange. And that on that cross, Jesus bore the full wrath of God's enmity towards your sinfulness and gives us his perfect righteousness. And I love at the end of Christ's time on the cross, as he breathes his last, he says it is finished. And he is not referring to his life. He is talking about the wrath of God being satisfied. It is finished. And thinking, right, that they had gotten rid of Jesus. They'd done away with him. They buried him. They put him in the ground. And guess what? God wasn't done. To display that he was God's only son and to prove that sin and death no longer had power and dominion over us and that we had been set free from the law of sin and death. God raised Jesus to life again. And next week we're going to celebrate that. And I always love Easter here because I tell you guys every year, we're not going to do anything special because guess what? We celebrate the resurrection every Sunday here. 
And we'll see some new faces next week and we'll celebrate with them. And if we never see them again, we'll pray that God might save them and that God might send someone into their life. But we are going to proclaim the resurrection constantly. Because in that, God has rescued you. And so if you're a Christian here this morning, here's what I'm gonna invite you to do. As we take communion this morning, before you come up and take communion, would you just sit there, confess and repent of any sin that you might have? And then you would come up and you would take communion and worship because Jesus' own flesh and blood were poured out for you and it's an opportunity to be thankful for him. And you can go back to your seat and you can sing and you can worship because you were chosen as a son and daughter of the Most High God. That is your position in him because God chose you. If you're here this morning and you're like, I, 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 I'm not a Christian. God is calling you. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we plead with you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God has made a way but there is only one, and it's through his son, Jesus Christ. If you repent of your sin, which is to be sorry and to ask God for forgiveness and to ask him to change you, and trust that Christ was sufficient to both pay the penalty of sin in your life and that he truly gave you his righteousness, if by faith you believe in him for that and make him the Lord of your life, you are saved. And I would submit to you, you're not here randomly this morning, but God wants you to hear that. You are loved. Christ died for you. Trust in him. Let's pray. God, you are good. Father, forgive me for wanting to question your sovereignty, your character, your holiness, your power. In my own wickedness, Lord, I know that I still wrestle with wanting control. Lord, I am so encouraged by your word that I am not. Father, thank you that it is all of grace that we are saved. God, you did not have to save anyone. And yet you saved so many. Father, move in us to submit to you, not just as Savior, but Lord, as God, as King, so that we might worship you for all that you are. God, thank you so much for your word. May we continue to go to it as a source for refreshment, for encouragement, and truth. May we continue to sing praises to your name and your name alone for all of our days. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.